Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Burn Your Draft, an exploration of the Reed College senior thesis process and experience. I'm your host, Frank Tangerlini, and this is a Burn Your Draft special episode where we will hear from Seth Paskin, alumnus and co-founder of Burn Your Draft, on the motivation behind the podcast. We'll also hear about his own experience as a co-founder and co-host of the podcast, The Partially Examined Life, and his time thesising at Reed as a philosophy major. The following live interview took place during the 2020 Paideia Week in the living room of Prexy, a building on the Reed College campus that housed presidents of the college in the early days of Reed. It's now the home for the Center for Life Beyond Reed and alumni programs. Um, I'd like to introduce Seth Paskin, uh, 90 alum. Seth is the co-host and co-founder of the Partially Examined Life podcast, been running for about 11 years now. Um, and he's also a sponsor, producer, and advisor, and also a bit of a co-host here on Burn Your Draft. Yeah. This is Frank Tangerlini. Did I say your last name right? Did. I did, all right. Frank Tangerlini here. Uh, she is our uh, Paskin podcast producer. Uh, she is a sophomore here at Reed College, and she is wearing all of the hats that we can give her, serving as our engineer and uh, host and producer for the podcast. Yeah, I think I'm ready to hand it off to the two of you. Yeah. All right. Cool. Uh, tell, tell me about what, what is Burn Your Draft? What is this project? So Burn Your Draft uh, is, in terms of form, it's a podcast. But what we wanted it to be, or at least what I envision that it will become, is kind of twofold. First, uh, we want it to be a vehicle to connect the broader alumni community who's not immediate to Portland back to the current student body. So by telling, by having seniors tell their thesis stories, whether recent or current students, um, into a format that's, that can be shared and is easily consumable, we feel like it will be a way to allow people who are not here and connected to what's actually happening with the current crop of students to get connected to that. So we hope it builds community in that way. Um, and then also it has a secondary function, which is not necessarily um, less important, but um, a few years ago when I came and we were doing what was in a uh, working weekend, I think it was called, I, I don't remember the names of all the various activities that we do here, but um, I found that I was talking, to, we were doing the round table, quick, you know, five minute interviews with students, and a lot of them were really stressed about how to represent what they did at Reed professionally. Like, how do I take my studies and then talk to somebody about that as, as if it's experience, right? And so um, kind of just, you know, Alice and I started talking about this years ago, and I just sort of thought, well, you know, there's, there's a, at the time it was very popular to talk about your personal brand and building your personal brand. I'm not a huge fan of that, but I get the concept, which is you need to be able to have a narrative about yourself that you can share with people. And it's particularly important for students who are either going to graduate school or entering the workforce, right? Uh, or doing whatever. Um, so the, the podcast itself is intended to be a way for students to, to get, a, seniors to get a grip on how to articulate their experience in concrete ways and share it, and then also build community and association in the, uh, between alumni and current, current and recent students. 
how did the idea for the thesis become the topic for this podcast? How did thesising and that uh, process? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna skirt the area of a rant, um, <laughs> but uh, it's it's funny because um, we're having a lot of conversations in my house right now. My wife and my and I and our friends because our two-year-old is about to start school so a lot of conversations about education and the right education and I am unapologetic about my commitment to traditional curriculum and conservative like western canon stuff I realize that's been a little bit of a hot button topic around here for the last five years or so so um, one of the things as I left Reed um, I'll just share a little personal anecdote here a big reason I went back to grad, I went to graduate school. I did not go to graduate school directly after Reed. I went and started working, and I went to graduate school, I think, two years afterwards. Um, and the re part, a big part of the reason why is I couldn't find anybody to talk to. There's nobody that gets a Herodotus joke, <laughs> right? So a big reason I went to graduate school is to be back around people like me who, could, who I could share this experience with. But one thing I always know about Reedies, no matter where you go, no matter... There was always a Hume 110 ice-breaking joke that you could make, right? Um, so, uh, but, you know, and Hume 110 is evolving, so that's no longer what it, it's no longer maybe the same shared experience that it was. Maybe it is, I don't know. But the one thing all, everybody who went to Reed and everybody who graduates from Reed has in common is that they do a senior thesis. And that experience is not identical for everybody, but it is similar, right? And it's that one thing that I think we can use as a lever to rally around as a community to have shared experiences. And so I think as a topic, it made perfect sense to me. Plus, and let's be honest, um, you know, I've been back here numerous times with numerous alumni groups, listening to the president talk about what the new vision is for this or talking. Alumni don't wanna hear from staffers. They don't wanna hear from the president. They don't wanna hear from each other. They want to hear from students. Every time you hear a student tell you about what they're doing, you get excited about the whole enterprise, and you get excited about yourself, and you get excited about learning. So that's really why we have, why I think it's important to tell these stories. It's a little daunting for me. I have no, and I don't know anything about the thesising process at this point, other than what I've learned from interviews. But after doing this for a year. Yeah, no, I'm You'll excited. You'll debunked all the myths. You'll, all you'll glide right through. Yeah. You'll glide right through. <laughs> uh, so how podcasting itself, that has created a great way of communication between alumni and students, but it's also largely a great media communication form. You yourself have a different podcast as well. How is that, along with Burn Your Draft, both of them, how does that help you to find someone to talk to so podcasting yeah it's podcasting is really interesting um, as a medium and it has evolved dramatically over the last decade so I'll tell you a little bit about PEL and kind of what podcasting was like back in the day and kind of where it's going now and so um, we started partially examined life about 11 years ago and um, I, I think there were maybe like 30,000 podcasts on iTunes at the time or something like that. And that number is now more like 600,000 or something like that. Um, and it, the, the, the original, I think the original appeal 
was the low barrier to entry, the low production cost, right? Anybody could become a podcaster. And so what happened was podcasting developed as a niche medium. Like, I'm really interested in model shipbuilding, so I'm going to have a model shipbuilding podcast. And you know what? There's 300 people out there in the world who are really excited about that same topic. And the really successful podcasts early on were uh, podcasts that were around a very specific subject that found their niche out there in the world. Um, but more importantly, podcasting signaled the revival of audio-only media. So radio is basically, I don't want to say radio was dead. It wasn't dead. Um, but, you know, you had satellite radio. So I don't know if you guys remember there was Sirius and XM and then they, they merged, right? Um, podcasting uh, was a consumable way to enjoy audio media, which is important as devices started to proliferate and the, the world got much more digitally connected because nobody's doing one thing at a time anymore. Nobody sits and just reads a book, right? You're on the treadmill or you're commuting or you're coding, right, or doing something and you're listening to something else because there's not enough time in the day for you to get your education on or your learn on in your spare time because, you know, there's just, so, but radio's not, radio's not convenient, satellite costs money, they don't play what you wanna hear all the time. So suddenly this comes along and it's like, hey, here's 15 minutes on something you're interested in and you can play it anytime you want, start, stop, rewind, and you don't have to pay anything for it. It's great, right, it's great for that. So that's how we got started and we found our niche and what I, what I found is Podcasting literally does create community. So um, <laughs> we thought we were making a product that we were then putting out there in the world that would be consumed. Instead, what we found out is we were creating a community of people who studied philosophy or wanted to study philosophy and didn't have anybody to talk to. And it's way more important to these people that they feel like they're sitting in the room listening to us and they can yell back and argue back with us than it is that they're, we're giving them something to chew on or to think about, right? And so it's really interesting in that way. Yeah. Sorry, I've been going on no, and on. I see okay. you looking at me uh, like... I was just going to put out there that I was researching some podcasting trends from this year to try to relate PEL to Burn Your Draft and... One of them was that live podcasting events similar to this one have really grown because people not only want to hear the podcasting in their ears, they want to see it and they want to really be there in that community. Yeah, no, that's that's I think that's true. Um, there's a whole podcasting festival that takes place, I think, in L.A. There might even be one here in Portland, I think. Um, and then I remember, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, Frank. There's a few of these morning shows that were radio shows for like sports, I think, and politics. And now they just put cameras in the studio and they've, they just videotape the people having these conversations too. And then now it goes on the television channel. So it's this weird thing where it used to be the primacy of video content and they would pull the audio out like you would listen to the TV feed over your radio. And now it's going the other way around where the radio people like Colin Coward right or, or Mike and Mike and these kinds of guys who do these sports things they just have cameras on them sitting in the studio talking like this and that's now content that 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 gets published on the on the airways so 
conversely, there are also now podcasts that are TV shows where all of the sounds from the TV show are made in studio and it's got a whole narrative, but also really surround sound feeling that you're in the TV show too. So it's transferred from this visual content to an audio content. Like the, uh, that was like this old timey radio. Yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> Remember there's one show on NPR that has that, where they do that. Um, Make a note about NPR. <laughs> I, might come, I might come back to that topic. It's both PEL and Burn Your Draft. They're very niche in that they stick to one thing, but PEL goes over a lot of different ideas and books. What does podcasting help to make that a simpler process, or how has it changed the studies that you've done? Hmm. With being able to edit super easily and all of that. Hmm. Okay. That's a, that's a tough question. Um, so for us, you know, we treat... Are people here familiar with the conceit of PEL? Like, what should I reiterate maybe a little bit? So I do, it's a philosophy podcast I do with um, three people that I went to uh, graduate school with. So we went to graduate school in philosophy. We all got master's degrees. We left, um, and we missed the conversation, right? So we, we didn't get our PhDs. That's why we're partially examined and not fully examined, right? Um, but not unexamined either. So we're, we're halfway there. And um, the, the, what we're trying to do is recreate the experience of you sit in a seminar for three hours, you talk about something, and the professor guides, right, or whatever, and then you go to a bar for three hours, and you actually talk about the subject, and maybe you get a little animated, like me, and, and maybe there's some yelling, and maybe there's some, you know, moving around of things on the table to demonstrate points. Um, so that's kind of what PEL aspires to be. It aspires to be that conversation in the bar. Now, we've calmed down quite a bit in a decade. We're not, it's not quite as animated, uh, I think, as it used to be. But um, I think what makes it such a great format for having these kinds of conversations is you can thematize. Like, so we're t thematically philosophy, which means we treat things with a certain amount of philosophical respect. But we can change the topics. You know, it's almost like a talk show with different guests, yeah. right? So Letterman was on for 30 years or whatever, and every show was different, but it was Letterman. You knew what you were going to get. And in the case of PEL, you know what you're going to get, but the topic is different every time. And aspirationally, what we're trying to do, I think, with Burn Your Draft is we're trying to stay thematic. We want people to know what to expect. They'll get this story, a senior thesis story from, but the actors and the topics will be different, but there'll be some consistency in the format and the interviewer and that sort of thing. And I think it'll go over really well. Yeah, uh, what, what is the importance of creating that kind of portfolio with these different, you're able to reach these specific topics and you're able to get there, but what are the main takeaways do you hope to come out of really diving deep into senior the senior thesis experience and the processes that different majors have to go through? You know, um, I haven't really thought about how it will differ major to major and uh, because I find everybody's story interesting. It's really more about the personal narrative than it is about the topic for me. But I will tell you this. Um, if I have one goal that I would like to achieve out of this, I hope that any 
alumni, especially long in the tooth alumni like me, who hears this, thinks in themselves, wow, that kid's just like I was, or things haven't changed. That's what I really want in my heart to feel because the one thing, now I come from a generation of alumni who are pretty crusty and you know they don't want anything to change and it's it was always better before you know before we had processes and people and you know back when you could do this and uh you build new buildings you know it's always there's always complaining about something <laughs> and um and i'm fine with that because i understand what i understand it but when they complain about the students not being the same as when we were there it's just not true it's just not true the the only significant difference between students now and students when I was here is you dress better than we did. <laughs> um, you know, it was a little more hippie when I was here too. It's just, uh, but I was a little crunchier. Um, but it's the same thing: the intellectual curiosity, uh, the you know, just the passion, art, you know, being articulate. Uh, sharing this love for the, the journey and the exploration, the camaraderie. I can't believe how nice everybody is to, you know. We had little cliques, and I'm sure that it's still that way, but I see how friendly everybody is to each other. There seems to be a genuine sense of camaraderie, and I think, you know, maybe, maybe your generation is a lot more collaborative than, than we were, and maybe the thesis experience is actually more shared than it was. We were all kind of siloed when I did it. Everybody went off in their little thing, and maybe that's the way it is now, but it feels like, it feels like it's the same intellectual enterprise, and it has been probably for the people that were graduating in the 20s and 30s. I bet if we heard them tell their stories, it would be similar to my experience in the, in the 80s and 90s, you know. Be interesting to find out. Uh, we've mainly just been interviewing alumni at this point, but once the seniors start really getting into the hot seat on their thesis. I'm sure, I hope some of them would love to come talk about it and see if there has been any significant changes or if it stays the relative same narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, do you wanna talk a little bit about your thesis? <laughs> <laughs> um, do I wanna talk about my thesis? Uh, so, um, well, I'll say this. Uh, when I was doing my thesis, that year or maybe that era, it was a thing to have the longest title that you could come up with. <laughs> so, if you look at the if you look at the Griffin, not the Griffin, but the the yearbook or whatever from that year, everybody's theses names are like they all have a colon. You know, it's like it's like alien colon resurrection. Um, so, uh, I did my. Senior thesis on, uh, in mathematical logic on uh, the quantificational treatment of modality in predicate logic. <laughs> yeah, which was the switch because I ended up writing my master's thesis on Heidegger, uh, which is quite a change. So, um, very briefly, I will tell you my thesis story, and I will try to keep it very brief. Uh, in predicate logic, in predicate logic is a way that you can symbolize natural language. Philosophers can symbolize natural language. So you, predication means to apply an attribute to like a subject. So if you say the green car, what you're saying is, you know, you're predicating green of the car. 
And so predicate logic and symbolization in general is intended to clarify statements that are in natural language to make it easier to understand if they're true or false and whether arguments are valid and sound, or well, valid anyway. Um, so if you think about that true or false, if true and false are your only two options, um, you, your vocabulary gets very limited very quickly. There's, um, because we have a thing, we have this notion of indeterminacy, meaning you might not know whether it's true or false. That's called epistemic indeterminacy. It means you, ep, ep, uh, epistemology is the study of knowledge. Epistemic indeterminacy just means it is true or false. You just don't know which one it is. And then you have, uh, you have essentially like metaphysical uh, indeterminacy or ontological indeterminacy, which is to say it is neither true nor false. Right? So Schrodinger's cat in the box, it's not dead or alive until you actually whatever hit that quantum inflection point. So what I did was I, I actually took natural language constructions and looked at how they implied, what they implied about truth, falsity, and indeterminacy, and then I complained vociferously about the inadequacy of symbolic language to capture that because I was on a rampage against. Uh, it, it, there's, there, was a, there was a movement at the time which is similar to, um, uh, what am I thinking of, in econometrics, that excessive, excessive symbolization and formalism was somehow in itself a path to clarity. So the idea was, you know, oh, well, if, if we just keep writing more and more papers with more and more symbolic logic in it, that somehow I'm doing better reasoning or I'm clarifying or I'm solving more problems. And I was trying to make the point that the really interesting things that we talk about with natural language can't be captured in simple predicate logic. It was extremely naive on my part to <laughs> believe that there weren't people out there who were doing more interesting work around modality, but it was not something they had easy access to back in those days because we didn't have the internet. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I couldn't just swing to the University of Chicago and interview a professor for my <laughs> senior thesis. What, what resources did you use for that thesis? Do you remember? Um, in fact, uh, there was a lot of really good work done by uh, a little cadre of Polish logicians pre-war. So I read a bunch of papers and books from like the 10s and the 20s, turn of the century prior to the Nazis destroying their culture. Um, and there was there were people doing work on that, so I started with that, and then there were some modern papers as well. How did this experience and this process transfer outside of Reed? Do you think that any of the skills or really takeaways from this process really helped you later in just learning how to do that big of a research study or within it, time oh. management, anything? Um, <laughs> time management, no. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I'm not gonna lie. I think that I worked straight for about 72 hours in the library um, to finish this thing up because I'm, I was not a good time manager. Um, but I mean, uh, in terms of the skills that it, that it took, um, I mean, research skills are great. Uh, thinking skills, you know, there's a cliche that li the liberal arts teaches you how to think, right, and then the STEM, you go to STEM to learn topics and you go to liberal arts to learn how to think. I don't think that's true. Um, but man, you know what it does is being able to 
write your thoughts down in a way that somebody else can understand them is a remarkable skill that very few people have. And I think because we live in this weird ivory tower world, we think that it's ubiquitous. Like, of course, everybody, you know, everybody's written papers. I can tell you, so when I went to become a TA, I was a TA at the University of Texas, t teaching assistant at the University of Texas when I was in grad school there. And this was 1992. They were already phasing out written any written work in high schools in Texas. So there were students coming in in like 92, 93 who had never written an essay in, in high school. Everything was multiple choice. And you can't underestimate how important it is to be able to articulate your thoughts. And it's way more important to be able to do that than to know anything about any topic once you become an adult. If you're gonna work with anyone, if you're gonna write an email, or if you're gonna sit in a meeting, you had better be able to understand what you're talking about and be able to communicate it. That's the single most important skill and it's really the fundamental thing that we get out of doing senior thesis because we have an oral defense as well. Yeah, I did do essays in high school, but my first Hume essay, I had to do the paper conference part of it and my professor turned to me and said, so the first question I have is, who taught you how to write? And my second question is, who taught you how to phrase a sentence? And I was, all right, did bad on that one. <laughs> yeah, so I, I understand that that is a big skill to learn here, especially they force it on you. Uh, if we have time, I mean, I could go on and on and on about this subject, believe me. You have no idea how important you are. You have no idea how valuable your skills are. That's a message that I think the seniors need to get. You literally have no idea what, a, what an amazing commodity you are to, to the world. And we just don't realize it because it's not said publicly enough. Yeah. <laughs> well, moving from your thesis and how that's affected you outside of Reed, what, how has it turned into, well, Give me a little background on your current employment and your <laughs> dual media career. Right, okay. So I have a very boring professional life. Um, that it's I do what's called technical marketing for a software company. It's called a B2B. Does everybody know what B2B stands for? Business to business. So there's B2B, which stands for business to business. It means my company does business with other businesses, not with individual consumers. And then you have B2C, which stands for you know, business to consumer, right? That's lingo in our, our world. So my company makes software that ginormous, the biggest companies in the world use to manage their uh, IT infrastructure. So my customers are the biggest companies and governments and any kind of organization in the world. Uh, and what we do, what my team does, is we build demo environments to showcase what our software does for, cu for potential customers. So if they want to see, show me how this works, or show me, you're telling me you can deliver X million dollars in savings, how are you going to do that, right? Or how do you do this thing or that thing? So that's what I do professionally. So I have a team of people, and I work with multiple groups to build out IT environments to do that. But... What I really do, that's, that's my job. 
But what we really do is tell stories. I'm a storyteller. The story is you are in pain. You are doing things inefficiently. It is costing you money. Your customers are losing you. You're at risk of being disrupted by Uber, the next Uber or whatever in your industry. But it doesn't have to be that way. You could buy our software, <laughs> and then you can innovate and disrupt and, and uh, uh, you know, revolutionize your business, and then you can be the disruptor. So really what I'm selling you is not software. I'm selling you a path to a viable future for your company because if you don't change now, you're going to become extinct. Well, the storytelling aspect. <laughs> okay. I'll buy it. Your storytelling aspect, it comes across in your podcast as well. So with both jobs, where, where did you pick up this storytelling habit and drive and ability so i think the ability so i'll tell you uh i'll tell you it's funny because my friend bruce is here who i haven't seen face to face in 30 years or something like this um but i had always there's a reason i picked philosophy and um i i went to a different college before i came to read i went for one year to a school in los angeles called occidental and it had a, I was in kind of a special program that instead of taking normal classes, it was this weird cross, um, I don't know cross, what the right term is. It was, it was an experimental program where instead of you take a class and you take math and science, and whatever, we all had this curriculum and it included math and language and, and arts and volunteer work and uh, you know, creative stuff, it was this thing. And um, I got exposed accidentally to some philosophy when I was there. Um, but I was a voracious reader going into college. I read, I mean, hundreds of thousands of books when I was in junior high school and high school. I just loved to read, mostly science fiction and fantasy. But, um, you know, I came across in high school and in that first year of college a little bit about philosophy. And I was fascinated by Socrates just fascinated by the character of Socrates, wanted to be a modern-day Socrates, wanted to wear a toga, go, in, go into the shopping malls, because those were a thing when I was that age, <laughs> and just harangue people and ask them, like, <laughs> what, what is happiness? What is beauty? What is justice? And do exactly what Socrates did. And I believe, Bruce, at one point you offered to sponsor me if you ever got a job, you were going to pay me to do that very work. <laughs> um, now, 50 years on, I realize what a prick Socrates was and how it, that was a terrible, it's terrible. He's a terrible person and he's, it's a terrible thing. But um, I have always had this passion for having conversations with people about what they believe and continuing to challenge those things and get from the complex to the, just keep breaking it down, the simple, the simple, the simple. And so I oftentimes tell people my superpower is making the complex simple. So um, I have, uh, it's a little rusty now because I'm in this job I'm in now, but I used to do what's called solutions marketing, which is where instead of technical marketing, I talk about the solution and, and you have to make PowerPoint slides. And I have unbelievable PowerPoint kung fu 
Like I'm like a ninth degree back black belt in, in PowerPoint. Do you have all the transitions? Transitions are junior league. That's Bush League. <laughs> Build slides and transitions are Bush League. No. Um, so there is when you have so we have 12, 15 products in our portfolio. They can do literally thousands of things. Um, you know, we work with customers that have hundreds of thousands of servers and you know tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of employees and customers and all this stuff everything is complex and the industry my industry moves lightning quick like every day there's new companies and there's new technologies and to be able to get to that nugget of that sentence of like let me tell you how this is going to change your life let me make it simple for you how can i do that that's what to me marketing is it's what socrates Plato used to complain about rhetoric. I've always been a fan of rhetoric. I'm always on the I'm always on the side of the the rhetoricians, like in Gorgias, you know, or, um, or Gorgias. So I'm a fan of it because I believe it's a truly valuable skill. Um, I also have a somewhat complicated relationship to the notion of truth, which is where Socrates and Plato and I diverge, oh. which is why I'm more of a fan of the rhetoricians. I see, and rhetoricians. That's podcasting too that's Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. so coming up with your opinions around those things do you think the expansion of podcasting as a broadcasting media has allowed for too much rhetoric or just enough rhetoric being I think it's been I like it because as I said to circle back to kind of what we talked about at the beginning um, it's a way for people to have a voice. I mean, if you think about it, Web 1.0 was blogging. So if you wanted to get on, if you were passionate about, you know, vegan cooking, you could get on and have a blog. And if you, you know, found people that read and they shared and whatever, and then, you know, Web 2.0 was whatever the next, you know, evolution of that was and syndication and all these things, right? Um, because now you can just basically take a phone record a podcast like this and press a button and you can publish it and syndicate it and all that everybody in the world anywhere they are can reach everybody in the world it's massively democratic in that respect <clears throat> so do i think too much definitely not um i i mean i'm all about you know the multitude of voices so if everybody in the world had a podcast i think that would be awesome it would be hard for you to connect to the subjects, you would be hard for you to find your, something you were interested in listening to. But what's happening in the industry is it's actually, there's consolidation. We've gone through our, if you can believe this, in like 15, 20 years, we've already gone through our hype cycle and we're going down in the consolidation. There's been disruption and now there's been consolidation. And what's happening is advertising came in. So they started off with um, in-podcast advertising and the idea was because everybody has a voice, these podcasts have personalities, the hosts have personalities, and they, they want them to sponsor their stuff. So the first wave of advertising was, hey, you have a podcast about philosophy. We think people who like philosophy would really like Toastios, you know, the chocolate <laughs> treat. So then they'd send me a box of Toastios, and I would have to eat it, and then go, folks, let me tell you about Toastios, you know, like, you know. <laughs> 
So there was this idea of what they call host read because it was so personality driven. It's literally the medium for the individual or for the group. And that is changing now. It's still personality driven, but it's personality driven the way the view is or the way um, you know, David Letterman or, or Jimmy, Jimmy Fallon or whatever is. And the media companies that sell that advertising space are now getting bigger and bigger advertisers like Ford Motor Cars and things like that. And they have a very different approach. They're not looking to sell. They don't want to send you product because they want you to voice. They want to know the demographics, who you reach, what the number is, their gender, their age, their disposition to buy, which is metrics that this medium doesn't deliver right now, but they're trying to figure out how to do. Yeah, so. I read about this a little bit. It kind of relates back to the databases and stuff that you're working, I don't know, working with, just back to your other technical side. But You should be, you should be scared of what information companies have about you and how they use it to process information to spit back at you. You should be terrified. I don't know that there's anything you can do about it, and maybe that means you shouldn't be terrified. You should just roll over and accept it, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's really scary. Yeah, no, they look at everything. Uh, I feel like they look at you more if they don't know anything about you, though, right? I'm trying to test that theory a little bit. Ah, and going off the grid? I'm selectively disengaging from ven from mediums that, that funnel my infor information directly to scary people. We'll see how that works. Ah. Uh. I'm trying to think. Um, tra transition from that point. Uh, technology is scary. Um. Well, let me let me say one other thing because I just looked down and saw this note I made about you mentioned NPR earlier. So we talk about kind of the industrialization of podcasting and how it's becoming more corporate. The other thing that's happened is, um, you know, podcast used to be pretty low-fi, you know, and the production qualities the production quality has gotten massively better. I mean, it's, it's to the point where it's not even acceptable to have a kind of low quality, even if you're the most interesting and famous person, if you don't have good production quality, people won't stick with it. And a huge part of the blame for that <laughs> lies on NPR, which produces the most amazing content. All of the NPR properties are just phenomenal. I mean, interesting topics, awesome hosts and, and interviewers, just super well edited, highest production values, and the stuff they're putting out is putting everybody else to shame. Yeah. It's really, really hard to keep up with what they're doing. Um, this American Life had an improv group on for a holiday special, and I found it to be so interesting to be able to listen to improv. As yeah, they do blow it out of the park. Um, how do you how do you hope we do that? How do you hope we <laughs> as burn your draft? You know, as editor, I'm hearing all this production quality. I'm shaking a little. No, no. <laughs> no well, so here's here's a great thing, and um, I'm about uh, I've talked enough, so I'm going to turn it back on you in a second, Frank. But let me say this: the park, the Performing Arts Center, didn't exist when I was here. Like that kind of here's what we had. We had that radio station. Is it still in the basement of that? The, the, Reed, the Reed College, the yeah. Right, right across from here. That was, the, that was the, the only piece of technology on campus besides the, the, the Mac 
the very first generation with the 400K disk. You remember the no hard drive? You had a 400K floppy, and it had the operating system, Microsoft Word, and all of your data on it. And it was, you guys don't even know what a floppy disk is, half the people in the room. Anyway, there we just didn't have this kind of stuff. And, you know, when we first started making our podcast, one of the interesting technical challenges, so this was, you know, 2009, is we were recording, we were talking to each other over the internet, which in 2009, if you weren't, an enterprise company with like WebEx or you know something like that, that's really novel to have a conversation with somebody over the computer. And there wasn't enough bandwidth and the technology wasn't good enough to, it, it, the quality wasn't there. So we started and we would record and we record our tracks individually locally to our computer directly through an interface into the computer so we would get enough quality. Then we would upload these files which for a three-hour conversation in high quality, uncompressed is about a gig, more than a gig of uh, size, if that means anything to anybody in the room. Um, and then we mixed them together because that was the only way we could get an acceptable level of quality. And the only reason we cared about an acceptable level of quality back then is that one of my co-hosts, and really the guy who's the driving force behind it, is a musician, and he's obsessive about this stuff. So the good news for us is we have Joe. Yeah, I was going to say, we should do this intro. Yeah. <laughs> yes, so the, we now have this Performing Arts Center. It has an amazing recording studio and tons of great equipment that's available to all students who should take advantage of it. This is all park material right here. All of this is park material. And we have Joe, who, in addition to this being his day job, is also has scored music for movies and has done music for and record uh, live, live events and... and so he has that same level of passion, and he won't let us produce anything that's not absolutely great quality, much to Frank's chagrin. Yes. <laughs> because I could make life much easier for her, but Joe is not going to let, let me do that. He actually is the person who designed the recording studio as well as much of the park, I think. And he did it much with a musical idea in mind, but he's also over the moon about podcasting in the recording studio and has really worked to try to make the resources available for any student to start their podcast there and to learn the there's a bunch of guidebooks and everything ready so that you can just do it which is really cool of him yeah it's awesome i mean it's an amazing resource if you went in it, it we live in uh i live in austin um and there are are surprisingly fewer recording studios there than you would think for being the li it's the live music capital of the world not the recorded music capital of the world that's nashville i guess um but the facility the facilities here at reed are second to none i mean it, it's it's literally that good and if you're a musician if you're somebody who's interested in music and you're wondering whether reed can help nurture that and give you access to tools to experiment absolutely i don't i mean I'm sure there's Juilliard and other places that have better facilities, but if you're talking about a 1,000 student liberal arts school, I don't think there's any place that's like this. This entire project has been very much guided within the community by Joe uh, Tony Moreno, who works for the blogs of Reed. He manages those. He was super helpful with putting that together. The CLBR team has been incredible. We're, I mean, everybody really just wants to help here at Reed, which is really cool and in 
great for me and everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's like I said, I feel like there's a real spirit of collaboration. And, you know, when Alice and I shopped this idea around the college, we, you know, it wasn't just that we didn't get any pushback. It was that we got enthusiasm. Everybody saw the value you know, when we were talking about what we thought it could do and what we thought it could become and how we thought it would work, everybody at all the touch points thought it was, you know, said, this is great. You know, I don't think anybody had an idea about how to make it a reality. So that's kind of like what that's been the hard work. But I think everybody supported it. I, I want to turn the question back. So let me say something about my involvement here. So I am sponsoring this financially and I do advise and I do, I'm trying to do a knowledge share. So I'm not but I don't want my fingers all over this. Like I have no, I don't, I'm trusting Frank to get um, support from the resources who know what they're doing about various topics. And I asked specifically not to be involved in certain key decision-making. So one of which was deciding who our student uh, podcast producer was going to be. Um, and uh, so let me turn around, Frank, why are you doing this? Why did you even apply for this role and what is interesting about it for you? Well, I came back this summer after spending it alone and I was also looking for someone to talk to, but I just wanted to talk to myself, I guess, because I wanted to do a podcast just about the different news and topics that were really bubbling up on campus last year. Um, and I didn't really know how to start that. I really didn't have a full grasp on the podcasting world. And my friend who was on Handshake turns to me and is like, there is a podcasting producer job here at Reed. You will learn how to do this kind of stuff. This is perfect for you. I was like, oh, yeah, I'll apply, I'll apply. And I applied, and yeah. And we're all thankful for it. I'm very thankful to be learning all of this technology and also becoming a better storyteller like you said that's it's all a learning process mm -hmm. that's what I'll say as I edit this <laughs> <laughs> yeah um podcasting I've been listening to the radio and podcasts for a very long time I'm from DC Washington DC uh so there's been a lot of, just a lot of broadcasting about politics, and I got a lot into podcasts that were very much just rundowns of the news that day, but then started to reach out into more of the, like, niche podcasts, got in really deep on a lot of crime podcasts, couldn't sleep for a while, had to switch it up. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think my Spotify 2019 recap or something has me listening to Riddle Me This, which is just a podcast of riddles that I fell asleep to at one point <laughs> that just kept playing. So it's my like number one song or something. Show of hands, how many people here actively listen to podcasts? See? Yeah. If, I'd, if I'd asked that three years ago, probably like 40% of the people. and. I could go on and on. I don't know if I want to moderate this and open it up to the floor, but uh, there was definitely a significant age and gender bias in both the production and the listening aspect to podcasts that has radically changed in the last few years. So it used to be skew very young and very male, which is why you have like Joe Rogan 
being you know super popular and and UFC kind of things. Um, and it was just I want to say like three or four years ago that one of the very first uh, parenting targeted podcast and child uh, podcast targeted at children and things like that have come up and those are are pulling more women and uh, a broader age group into the conversation which is awesome because we're finally getting some real diversity in what we see out there that we didn't have before yeah no i'm very glad that i don't reach that category so <laughs> to have this job we must have changed something um I don't, yeah, do we? You wanna open it up, Nate? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, hey everybody. Um, yeah, so we're gonna move the conversation on to uh, less of a chair to chair, and more of a room to chair to chair. Um, yeah, so if anybody like has anything that they wanna ask or anything, or if anybody wants to share what their favorite podcast is, it doesn't have to be this or a partially examined life, it can be anything you like. You don't have to suck up to us. We like you. Uh, my name's Thomas. I'm a philosophy major senior. Um, <laughs> thanks. Uh, I was just thinking about Dolly Parton's America. Uh, Radio Lab just produced that miniseries, and I was just blown away by that series. I'm from Tennessee, so I uh, relate in a, a particular way uh, they just talk about how uh, the whole world is kind of oriented on Dolly Parton. She has a theme park, all that. And they also talked about how Dolly Parton reaches uh, like a very wide political spectrum. Um, she reaches like feminists who kind of uh, really like what she does but she doesn't really identify as a feminist. Uh, and she also reaches like a very conservative audience uh, who's really into country music and all that kind of aesthetic. Uh, I was wondering if you could maybe talk about like the, the, the political aspect of, of podcasting. You know, it seems like a pretty like liberal kind of thing, even like NPR is supposed to be like pretty neutral, but it's generally regarded as like kind of liberal. Uh, so maybe you could talk a little bit about about that. Okay. Um, well, I will qualify my answer by saying that this is strictly my experience. I can't say that I have a ton of like industry knowledge about this. Uh, well, actually, let me say one thing first. I believe that Dolly Parton is one of the 10 greatest Americans who ever lived, just for the record. Um, she is brilliant, a brilliant businesswoman, an amazing performer, uh, uh, an unbelievable human soul. She's the, I mean, she's the best. So I, and I believe that she appeals to everybody because she represents everything that is, everything that's good both about, uh, you know, country and, um, and also uh, capitalism, I think, at the same time. It's really interesting. <laughs> anyway, um, so the political spectrum. Um, there are, I think, podcasting skews, if it, if it does skew more liberal, it's partially because it was 
I think, initially early adopted by people who are tech savvy and typically younger and who are, generally speaking, going to be more liberal. Um, I don't know that that's true 100% anymore. I'm pretty certain. I, I work, most of the people who work at my company, my peers, are significant, are my age or older, like surprisingly. We don't have a, t we don't have a ton of youthful infusion because in like, we're not a startup, you know, that kind of thing. And I work with a lot of people who are conservative, you know, um, hunting and, you know, it's Texas too, right? Hunting and fishing and all that stuff. Like that's just kind of the standard water cooler talk. Um, so, and those people listen to podcasts too. It's just, um, I think using podcasting as a vehicle for political expression was first adopted by some of the more liberal leaning media outlets. And it's only sort of gradually because the audience, you know, uh, I believe there are, I believe there are more vehicles or more media venues on the liberal spectrum compared to the conservative spectrum that are considered canonical or, you know, like that. But I bet that if we went and looked, if you go to the outside of mainstream conservative opinion, so you look at the people who are, you know, like Alex Jones has a podcast, right? I don't even know if you can call that conservative. That might just be wackadoodle. But um, I think there's probably a lot of those people out there, too. So, you know, um, I think institutionally, I think what you're saying is right. But I, I, I don't know if it's being counterbalanced in, as, as we evolve. I think it will be important, back to your rhetoric, uh, we, we talked about rhetoric. I think it's important politics-wise within podcasts to hear the types of questions and the phrasing of those questions that they're asking people. One of the big tips that is given to hosts is that never to ask a yes or no question. So then to receive a yes or no from the guest it can be telling of other things. So I think that there's a whole nother depth to podcasts and it's what they choose to include, the questions that how they phrase them, where it's located, all of that can be really dug into or it can be surface level and you can just listen to riddles. Any other questions? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Bruce, yeah, here you go. I have uh, an addendum to one of Seth's anecdotes and then, a, uh, and then a comment. The addendum is when the topic was back at age 2021 20, of what shall Seth do for the rest of his life, Socrates wearing a toga at the shopping mall was the classy version. The more, the more amusing version was he would follow the model of Diogenes and live in a large clay jar and harangue people all day, clothes optional. <laughs> But the, uh, the comment is just even seeing the invitation describing the premise of this podcast is uh, really exciting. When you think in terms of storytelling, that in an age when we're supposed to all be coached into having short attention spans, podcasting is showing that we have a thirst for conversations, for stories that, goes, that go for hours, dozens of hours. And in thinking in terms of putting together a story, you have a quirky set of intellectually curious characters with the students, quirky faculty, uh, the crisis opportunity of putting a thesis project together, uh, reaching a culminating event, and then at the moment, of, uh, does it go to turn it in debauchery? Does it go into turn it in collapse? Or does it go into turn it in debauchery, then collapse? <laughs> but it's uh, looking very much forward to this uh, podcast going and I think also on a base level 
It could serve as a good emotional support group for people who have been through it or are going through it or will be going through it. It's terrific. Thank you. So speaking of going through something, anyone here, like a, a thesis, a thesising senior right now? Anybody here? Yeah? 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 All right, all right. One of you, whoever wants me to come at you with the mic, keep your hand up. Great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, can you tell us, can you tell us your name and then uh, just kind of briefly what you're doing, what your major is? All right. Uh, I'm Henry Blanchett and I'm a computer science major here at Reed. And my thesis is on uh, effects in programming languages. I won't go into detail, but uh, some of my favorite podcasts actually I wanted to mention also. Uh, I like conversations with Tyler, Tyler Cowan at the Mercatus Center, and also uh, The Portal with Eric uh, Weinstein. It's a very interesting new podcast, but I also wanted to ask uh, you about, you've talked a lot about things that you like about podcasts, and as a podcast connoisseur yourself, I assume, but what do you think are some trends in podcasts you listen to that you think are negative or constructive criticisms you have? Well, I'd say <clears throat> first off is that the medium makes it really easy to be self-indulgent. Uh, and the worst thing in the world is to listen to somebody who's just, they're very much, they're very much wrapped in themselves. And they, you know, it's like, they're not having a conversation about topics in a way that, that is genuinely meant to share or puzzle through. I mean, um, so it, it, they can become that way. I don't like, I don't like, <clears throat> conversational podcasts uh, where it takes like 20 or 30 minutes to get to the actual topic. If you, if you say you're going to talk about something and then you guys are bullshitting for like 15 minutes about beer or the weekend or whatever, uh, that has a tendency to, to tune me out. In terms of what's trending with podcasts that is a concern, <clears throat> um, there's a concept of a podcast network that's happening um, and Originally, I think the idea was, okay, we're, we're a bunch of little struggling small-time properties. If we come together as a group, we can cross-promote. We'll have more leverage. We can share best practices and costs and things like that. But what's happening is um, they're getting swallowed up by these media companies. So there's, uh, there's um, Scott Aukerman, who is out of L.A. He's a comedian, and he started this thing called Earwolf. You may hear people talk about it in Earwolf. Um, he initially started a podcast network for comedians because comedians are notoriously uh, incapable of doing things for themselves, I think. And so, you know, it was like, we have a studio and we know how to record and we know how to do all these things. But then, you know, that got sold to like another company and now like they own all the properties. Like, so that's where Mark Marin and at least, you know, so it's become like it, then now they're the media machine that owns this, right? They're like the the Disney of that particular genre, and you know, anytime you consolidate any kind of power or control like that or information, you run the risk of creating all kinds of bad downstream effects. Which I think the company that we do our, the company that we used to do our advertising with, meaning they found advertisers and then would book spots on our podcast, got bought by uh, a huge media company called Scripps. So the company we were in was called Midroll, got bought by Scripps. And then, you know, six months later, they were like, well, we want everybody who's on using our, our advertising service to be on our distribution platform. 
they wanted to own they want to own all the means of production and the content and everything and we politely declined and we don't work with them anymore but there's that's the kind of levers that you're starting to see get pulled I think you had a question over here too and you want to I'll make it easy I'll ask a couple questions so get your name get your major uh, a little bit about your thesis and if you have a favorite podcast all right great oh there you go hello um, I'm Hadley Parrish Cotton and I'm an English major and I'm writing a creative thesis focusing on um, growing up in Florida. Um, <laughs> cool. <laughs> so, so <laughs> I don't meet a lot of Floridians in Oregon, so it's, it's exciting. Um, and specifically growing up queer in Florida and topics like that and uh, dealing with like conflict as a child. Um, and I guess that kind of ties into my favorite podcast, which is probably Heavyweight from Gimlet. Um, and just, I love hear for one, I love hearing conversations. Um, and the host of that show is very passionate and funny, but it's really interesting to see how conflict, especially like in childhood can be carried with you throughout your life. And like seeing the way that conflict and like personal struggle is uh talked about in that show is something different than what i have heard in uh, i mean i've never heard anything like it so it's it's really awesome um and i guess i'm, I'm just really excited for this podcast also <laughs> at reed i'm really excited to listen there's a sign-up sheet in the back room I'm Sadie. I'm also a senior philosophy major, um, and I'm thesising on virtuous consumerism. So I'm kind of looking at critiques of consumerism through like virtue ethics and understanding if consumerism, like it, as an ideology in and of itself, is vicious, or if it's just other aspects of the consumer society or consumer culture, or just like human beings. But um, yeah, I was wondering what your thoughts on podcasts are that are like because one of my favorite podcasts is called welcome to N night vale which i don't know if you've heard of it but yeah it's just kind of like this very bizarre like i think it's supposed to like simulate a local radio station and like the local news of this like random town in the middle of nowhere where there's like this all these different kind of characters who keep coming up like old woman josie who's like yelling in front of the grocery store every day and things like that and how you've seen if you've seen podcasts kind of be informative and like yours and i know there are other podcasts that i listen to like you are not so smart and like philosophize this is like another philosophy podcast that i also listen to but um how like podcasts can be both informative and also if you've seen a lot of other types of podcasts like welcome to night vale or those that are kind of just like for the i don't know enjoyment of the listener I mean, I've listened to a few of the type that are for the enjoyment of the listener. I've mainly stuck to news or more story-based, but I have very much enjoyed this, like, so Serial has their season three. They took it, they took place in a courthouse and they spent the year there interviewing different people and going over different cases and really just sitting there and observing and talking about all the different sites you're seeing and what's happening and really trying to get on both sides of it. And I think that 
that's the type of podcast I like to hear the most is when interviewers just go out into the world and try to talk to people and try to hear what they're saying when it's something that's more scripted or like I can hear that they're editing these kind of things into it it throws me off definitely so I think it's more of the like on the street kind of reporting but in podcast version so it's cut down and stuff uh that really I don't know it's the kind of podcast I listen to yeah, I am. Um, I think I'm. I don't know if I've e- become this or if I always was this, but um, I don't. Uh, it se- It feels to me like every minute that I spend um, doing something, I'm like having to either accomplish something or I'm trying to learn something. I don't get a lot of opportunity to just enjoy. Mm-hmm. So um, I have. Uh, the podcast I listen to are typically similar to what I do because I'm, I want to learn, you know, or there are things that I think are provocative, in, you know, for me in t- intellectually. Um, but I have a couple of guilty pleasures, um, the guiltiest of which is this show called Doug Loves Movies. Um, so it's the comedian Doug Benson, and he does a podcast where he just has other comedians on. And they talk about, he has some games. They play games and talk about movies. And he's been doing it almost, I think, longer than we've been doing ours or a very similar amount of time. And I'm just in awe of the consistently high quality of the, um, you know, totally unscripted improv interaction between these comedians. And it's, you know, it varies from group to group. But it's just, he is such an amazing facilitator that he does this off-the-cuff and has done thousands of shows and it's just, and I just love listening to it, even though I don't really, I'm not that big on movies. You know, it's like not even a topic that I find that uh, compelling, but it's fun. Uh, Otherwise, um, of course, all the standard philosophy podcasts, uh, typically ones from people that we've worked with. So Elucidations, the Unmute podcast, you know, Maisha Cherry, she's got this, the Unmute podcast, um, Philosophize This, Very Bad Wizards, um, you know, these are all, and I got to say, I'm kind of, uh, tactical at the way I go at those. I don't just listen to them in a stream. It's like, if they've done a topic I'm interested in, I, I'll go after it and, uh, to hear what somebody else's perspective is. Um, but yeah, I don't like welcome to Night Vale and Serial and all those things. I, I don't junk out on those. I go Malcolm Gladwell too. I like his podcast. He's a good storyteller. Um, there's another one that I just, uh, stumbled across that I think is really bite-sized and fun. It's called something like that's the way I heard it or that's the story I heard, something like this. I got to look that one up and it basically it's a guy and it's about seven minutes long I think and he talks about somebody or something without identifying it until the very end and so you learn the backstory of like how you know what Washington came to chop down the cherry tree or whatever it is you know that kind of thing um, and it's interesting. Yeah it's fun. Well, I think we had another, yeah, right, uh, we got two more we want to hear from folks out here. Hello, my name is Saganar Green Horner. I'm an ICPS uh, poli-sci major. The thesis I'm doing on is actually a comparative politics study of kind of why in the 1970s some, country, uh, uh, some countries were able to adopt a wealth tax whilst others t- were not able to. And kind of my question, uh, question for you is, pardon if I'm a bit of a contrarian, and I know 
you mentioned kind of the issue of how there was this ma- mass kind of growth of podcasts, but then there's some this sudden consolidation. But is it possible there may be cons- there could be concerns about kind of just due to the sheer n- uh, increase in the number of po- podcasts that it, uh, that it kind of fell into a similar media tra- uh, a media tra- trap like a lot of other media in terms of fragmentation and then the issue of kind of hyper specificity of kind of people just doing what they want and then kind of just not listening to others and uh, pardon, but I'm particularly thinking of Alex Jones. Or do you think that there were there are kind of other kind of mechanisms and that work that could kind of counter that kind of uh, that kind of tendency? So I'll tell you the mechanisms that I see at work, and then you know maybe off mic we could we could delve in this a little deeper. But when there's so much content out there, if you want to make your voice heard, and this is as true now as it ever has been, you have to either be unbelievable you either already have to be well known and popular like if michelle obama started a podcast like oprah did she would immediately have millions of listeners right but that's because she built her brand or her name somewhere else so you either have to be to, to get heard and to get recognized you have to either be famous already you have to be so outrageous or so somewhere that it fills some kind of need for some people that are looking for it that they can't find it anywhere else or you got to jump, be part of the machine. So the consolidation I talked about is really about the, the consolidation of promotion and marketing. Where, you know, if you just if you go and start a podcast yourself, how are you going to convince people to listen to it? Where are you going to market yourself? How much money are you going to spend to do that? What channels are you going to use to promote it? How are you going to connect and network and all that? Well, if if you get your podcast adopted by a network that's producing 40 other podcasts, well, that's your answer, right? So it's that kind of consolidation. There's still, of course, room for the voices in the void. We have a friend um, in Austin who's a really interesting guy, musician, Buddhist, and he he has a podcast called Friends with Deficits. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. And um, he just interviews people that have weird debilitating or degenerative diseases who just happen he has a lot of friends that have weird conditions that just about like okay well what's it like to have epstein or lyme's disease or whatever the case may be and um you know i won't say he he doesn't have a huge listenership after doing three seasons of it whatever um and he is asking me about you know how can i get more attention and media how do i get more promotion around this and i'm like you know, this is the kind of conversations we're having. And so uh, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think there's a thesis there that you put out that we agree or disagree on, but I believe there are currents in the market that are typical of what we see as things get, you know, as there's a corporatization and a monopolization of these things that are driving a lot of the movements, which is not to say that there won't be a disruptive change. I think the, the biggest issue really is that if you think about how you find podcasts, the, 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 the way you do that is extremely limited. I mean, there's really, a, iTunes is like 70% of all distribution of podcasts. So Apple has a virtual, a virtual monopoly. And then how Google decides it wants to work or not work with Apple, um, you know, dictates what gets presented to you when you go searching for subjects and topics. Otherwise, you got to swipe right constantly, like, you know, on the iTunes store. I know if you're Googling burn your draft, you will get a bunch of pictures of draft burning cards. 
not your thesis that you're burning. <laughs> well, we're going to change that. Yeah, we got to we got to work on that one. We got to work on that one. So anyway, that's just off of my cuff the what I, what it made me think of. Cool. I think we have time for one more person here. Uh, I'm going to step around the room here. You may have to come to me a little bit. We're going to see. All right, here we go. Um, so as before, yeah, like name, major, um, roughly what your thesis is about, favorite podcast. Um, I'm Kaylee. I'm a math philosophy interdisciplinary major. And I don't know if my thesis will make a lot of sense in a short synopsis, but it's basic. <laughs> but it's basically I'm looking into the evidence provided by external consistency proofs of Fino arithmetic. <laughs> Um, and something that I was interested in asking a question about is this concept of truth, because you said you had a weird relationship with truth, and that just sort of stuck in my brain. There's a type of rhetorician that Plato derides calls a, called a sophist, and, um, and I guess the position of the sophist is that you can come up with a good argument for anything, and then th and there's a sort of indifference between positions that might be um, true. So that sort of has a either relativism or indifference about truth. So I guess I wanted to ask a little bit more about that um, mindset of being, you know, Socrates and asking and coming up with arguments for anything with relation to your passion for providing content uh, for people. Bringing it all home with the last question. I like that. Um, <laughs> Thank you. So uh, this is a subject about which I'm I'm happy to uh, happy to speak. Uh, so the distinction, the the difference as I as what I take away from it is the difference between being for Plato the sophist is somebody who seeks to persuade indifferent with indifference to the truth as opposed to being a relativist or anything like this whereas a philosopher is a true is a seeker after truth um, and so what Plato is really concerned about ironically in this context right is he doesn't want sophist teaching the youth you don't want to teach people just had to be good arguers. You want to teach them how to find the truth. That's the, and so the sophists get a bad name in, in Plato and it carries through. Sophistry is a pejorative term now, even now. And um, I think the idea that people should be, we should deride or devalue persuasive speech in favor of argumentative speech because the, people should be rational and be persuaded by good argument as opposed to rhetoric, I think is, that was the bias I had when I was a 20-something a philosophy student, right? And like, ah, people are so stupid, um, you know, or irrational. And now that I'm, now that I, I'm gray and, and, and mature, uh, <laughs> You, I have come to realize people are not rational. Um, people are not rational. People, we, we have very little choice. We have very little free will. Um, I, in fact, don't believe that we do have free will, which is a whole other conversation that we can have, and I'd be happy to do so. But so, And because I have been in marketing and technology for two decades now or something like that, I understand that 
you can have the best arguments on earth and not persuade anybody of anything. In fact, the, the Platonic dialogue that you really want to pay attention to, there's so many great ones, don't get me wrong, um, uh, even though we were just talking about Simone de Beauvoir before the podcast, who's my current favorite uh, writer. But if you look at what Plato does in the Mino, uh, and the idea that, that knowledge is something that you bring out, right, that people have in them and they, you, you help. What, what teaching and what, what learning is is not receiving information externally but coming to a conclusion and understanding yourself. I think then um, you can recast this dichotomy between persuasive speech and truthful interrogation and say the goal should be to persuade people to come to the truth. You, now, you can persuade people to come to any point of view, but the point is, they have to do it themselves. You're not there to you're not there to argue them into understanding, and I don't believe you can. You just can't change people's minds. You you cannot convince somebody with a string of syllogisms or symbolic, you know, argument of something. You might be able to convince a philosopher, but you're not going to convince a person. Um, <laughs> and so I just have a lot more respect for people who can get other people to see things that they didn't previously see or come around to a point of view that they didn't have prior to the conversation. And then it's just a question of are they employing that skill to evil or good ends. Um, and if we want to talk about truth, I'll talk, we can, afterwards, we'll talk about uh, uh, Aletheia or Aletheia and Heidegger and how that changed my notion of truth and all that. And we can. I'll tell you more about what I think about truth and the, the quest thereafter. Well, I think that's all the time we have. Yeah. Uh, outro. Um. <laughs> uh, thank you, Frank. Yeah, thank you for, ha for coming here, for sponsoring this, being a co-host. Thank you. Yeah, obviously I did all this just so I could promote myself and my podcast, right? I can't That's a very elaborate. I, there, is, there, is, there is no small amount of truth in the fact that a large motivation for me is to have an excuse to come back and visit Portland. I'm not going to lie about that. So, but we want to do some good in the world, too. Leave it a better place. Well, thank you for that. Um, we are going to be releasing the podcast at some point. Right now, we're in the process of really putting together a library and having enough episodes to be able to have a finite release kind of timing schedule. But if you are a senior in this audience and you are interested in being interviewed and feel as though you're in the hot seat enough to have interesting things to say, this would be a great time to start arguing your thesis. Uh, anything to close? Thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, it would have been a real bummer if the room was empty. Um, uh, and especially thanks to the seniors, and a special, special thanks to the philosophy seniors here. here. There, are, there are in this room two more um, non- May, uh, non-male cisgendered philosophy majors than there were in my three years 
uh, at, at Reed. I was about to say female, and then I realized I don't have, I get emails from Alice, and she has the thing where she identifies what pronouns to use with her. This is something I don't do, and I'm not used to yet, so I didn't, I tried not to step on my own toes there for a second, but <laughs> I'm very glad to see that it's not just people that look like me. Yeah, thank you all so much for coming. Um, I hope Prexy treated you well, and I hope this was <laughs> a fun thing to listen to and to see, and I hope you all listen to it again when we post it, but also some of the other episodes. I hope to hear from you, too. Thank you so much for tuning into this special episode of Burn Your Draft. We appreciate all the people that came to the event and all the people tuning in from wherever you are. A special thank you to Nate Martin and Alice Hara for organizing the event and space, and to Joe Janiga for helping turn the Praxi living room into a recording studio. Burn Your Draft is a production of Reed College and the Center for Life Beyond Reed, created jointly by students, alumni, and staff. This episode was produced and engineered by me, Reed College student Frank Tangerlini. Our executive producer is Seth Paskin, class of 1990, with technical advising from staff member Joe Janiga. Nate Martin, staff member and alumnus, is our project manager. Music by alumni Jack Salvucci and podcast art by alumni Henry Gotchlik and Lillianne Pham. This podcast was made possible by a gift from Seth Paskin.